Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 148, Kevin Claremont, a theory for evaluating evidence against the standard of proof. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, from the Texas A&M University School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence and proof. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. Joining us today on Excited Utterance is Kevin Claremont, the Robert D. Ziff Professor of Law at Cornell Law School. Of course, Kevin is a scholar who really needs no introduction. If you've worked in the fields of civil procedure or evidence law, you've certainly come across his work. He's penned, I think, numerous articles and a few books, in fact, on legal proof and conceptualizing the proof process in the courtroom. And today, I'm fortunate enough to really continue that conversation with Kevin as I dive into a discussion of his most recent article entitled, A Theory for Evaluating Evidence Against the Standard of Proof. Of course, I uh, really enjoyed my conversation with Kevin. He's just so knowledgeable, incredibly knowledgeable when it comes to the proof process and its intersection with legal theory. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kevin today. Kevin, welcome to Excited Utterance. Well, I'm mighty pleased to be here. So today we're talking about the nature of proof and its intersection with epistemology. Now, you, of course, have authored numerous, I think, amazing books and articles on this topic. And I have to ask an initial question before we dive in too deeply. So as an initial matter, what led you to this focus? I remember an early class in my uh, civil procedure career where I was drawing on the blackboard the usual diagram of preponderance of the evidence with the strength of proof increasing to the right, the plaintiff starting on the far left and trying to get over the 50% line in the middle. And I had the sudden panic. Why does the plaintiff start on the far left? You know, what a disadvantage for the plaintiff. I sweatily prayed that no student would ask why that was. <laughs> and none did, of course. So I survived that one. The second impetus for interest in this field was that uh, my CivPro casebook covers evidence and proof, albeit briefly. Over the years, I added treatment of the conjunction paradox. That is the, the old chestnut that a plaintiff might prove each element of a cause of action but by probabilities, product rule still fail to prove the conjunction of elements, that is overall liability. I put this in the case book, but I had to admit that I, I couldn't begin to explain the paradox. So those two questions kind of nagged at me over the years. That's the only explanation for my interest in these questions, although I admit I realized that these questions were important questions. Over 35 years, turned out 19 articles and two books on evidential proof. And uh, I'm here in this podcast today because Professor Nunn is one of the brave few to have read a couple. Well, it is certainly an origin story that I can relate with, at least as far as it goes to praying that students won't ask certain questions. <laughs> I've absolutely been there. So let's turn now to the model of proof that you advance in this particular paper we're discussing today, 
And you note that decision-making generally at trial breaks down really into three discrete stages. So what are those stages? Yeah, this is nothing original. A lot of people recognize this, that the finding of facts breaks down into three stages. The fact-gathering stage, where the litigants go out there and find the information, the evidence stage, where they produce the evidence, and the decision-making stage. So the first stage, the fact-gathering stage, is the search for and the sharing of relevant information. The second is the presentation of the evidence to the decision-maker. And in the third or decision stage, the decision-maker will mentally assess and weigh the evidence and render a decision on matters of fact. So the interesting thing is that the law extensively treats the two stages, the first two stages, by the provisions of procedural law on investigation and discovery, and by evidence law on admissibility. But the law treads very lightly in the third or decision stage. And I want to follow up on exactly that point, because to my eye as well, it seems like not only the law, but the evidence literature itself really focuses on those first two stages that we've identified, right? The the fact-gathering stage and the evidence stage. But you're focusing not on those two stages, but instead on the third stage, the decision stage. So why is that? Why why the shift in focus? I know it, it really is interesting how the scholarship has focused on the first two stages and neglected the third. After all, the decision stage seems the most important, but the law just lets fact finders do whatever they intuitively do. I guess then academics follow the law. So if the law treats the first two stages heavily, legal academics follow that focus. And so the only academics that treat the third stage are more interested in logic and psychology than law. Now, here comes a caricature by an outsider to evidence law, but it seems to me that their focus has been mainly on stage two, with a few major exceptions like Locke and Bentham, and especially Wigmore. Around 1970, the scholars of the so-called new evidence broke onto the scene. Their point was that the focus of scholarship should shift from stage two into the more abstract stage three. Their work was incredibly exciting. There were huge symposia about probability paradoxes, but their interest, it seemed, was more in refining probability, getting more sophisticated about probability than really untangling the paradoxes. It was Bayes this and Bayes that as the new evidence scholars rushed down legal dead ends. Eventually, evidence teachers got tired of chasing them down these dead ends, and the excitement petered out. And so it seems to me that we're back to the old evidence, with some notable exceptions like Dale Nance and Alex Stein and Pardo and Allen. Now, that's kind of a caricature by an outsider, and it's not essential to my point. But do you want to set me straight on that at all, about where evidence scholarship is today? No, I think that that's absolutely been the case. In many ways, this could be a product, too, of codification. You mentioned that the 1970s, federal rules of evidence were codified in, in 1975. And so the focus has shifted towards those rules and towards those first two stages in a way just from the abstract notion of decision-making rather than focusing on those rules of admissibility. Uh, that's a great point. 
So let's dive in then, recognizing that there's been a scant treatment to this third stage, to this decision-making stage. We have your paper, which helps fill that void, and I really enjoyed reading it. So you note in this paper that the decision stage has two phases itself. So what are those two phases in that third stage of decision-making? Okay, this is, again, fairly unarguable. There seemed to be an evidence processing phase, that is, where the fact finder receives the evidence and somehow converts it into an impression of what the facts are, that they process the evidence. Then there's the second phase, the proof evaluating phase, where somehow a fact finder takes their product that takes the output of evidence processing and compares it to a standard of proof in order to reach a decision. And so those are the two phases, evidence processing phase, proof evaluating phase. And let's put a final punctuation on this particular aspect of our conversation. We've talked about this or mentioned this earlier, but I want to drive it home. How has the law treated this decision phase? It's hands-off, isn't it? It is hands-off, although the degree to which it's hands-off varies in the two phases. Regarding the first phase, evidence processing, the law imposes virtually no enforceable restraints on the fact finder's methods. The evidence comes in, and somehow the fact finder converts that to a belief or a conviction about what the facts are. The law doesn't do anything. I mean, there might be, or there is, some review of the output for irrationality or clear error. But basically, fact finders do as they see fit. Psychologists, on the other hand, have made some limited progress in figuring out how fact finders process evidence, generating the information integration model, the story model, and the like. In the second phase, where the proof gets evaluated to render a decision, the law does start getting re-involved. This is the realm of standards of proof. I mean, there's law here. Oddly, psychologists have thus far had very little to contribute to the understanding of how the standards of proof work. You just don't need to read psychology. They're so immersed in the evidence processing phase that nobody talks about, well, gee, how do you go about measuring the belief generated by the evidence against the standard of proof. Instead, logic takes over in explaining this phase, the proof evaluating phase, so that the law using logic specifies a standard of proof as the level of sureness required in an uncertain world for a decision on each necessary fact. Policy does help set the standard of proof. The law will set the required standard of proof, like civil and criminal, in order to achieve policy goals. Now, I did write an earlier article about the evidence processing phase, and this article that brings me here today is on the proof evaluating phase. But both articles were based on a fairly simple idea, and that idea is that probability is an inadequate tool for understanding empirical proof or evidential proof. And the law has long employed a different tool that needs to be brought out into the open. Perfect. Well, you just set me up amazingly because one of my favorite moments when reading this new paper from you 
was recognizing, oh, wow, your model in this paper really has significant utility in potentially exposing problems with these probabilistic notions of proof. So I want to build up to that insight by first exploring for listeners who might not be familiar, just generally proof probabilism. So what is probabilism? Okay, probabilism really refers to the use of traditional probability theory to explain the law. Now, what is traditional probability? Traditional probability is what you think of as probability, whether it's a classical, frequentist, or subjective kind of probability. Non-traditional probability is super sophisticated. You don't get into it accidentally. So when I say traditional probability here, I mean what everyone listening thinks is probability. What traditional probability does is it gives decision makers a way to handle the world's ubiquitous uncertainty. And it works very well for certain tasks. What we forget about it is that it's based on a number of simplifying assumptions. Two of those assumptions are very important for my purpose. One, probability mathematics build on our usual bivalent logic. We don't think about this. Everything we do, logical, assumes that all things are either true or false. There's no in-between. Aristotle went with this, and we've gone followed dutifully for the last few millennia. Second assumption is that when probability theorists started to formulate probability, they made three key assumptions, which are called axioms. One of those assumptions is additivity, that the chances of true and false add to one. If the probability of something being true is P, its chance of being false is one minus P, additivity. This is Kolmogorov's, one of the three axioms. So the source of traditional probabilities problems for law springs from these fundamental assumptions of bivalence and additivity. A consequence of the two assumptions, for example, is that traditional probability can express only the inexplicably random uncertainty. It cannot express the much more important kind of uncertainty that we run into in uh, law, epistemic uncertainty, that is unsureness that stems from what we don't know. That touches right on a point that I want to follow up with, which is exploring some of the problems with probabilism. How do you see probabilism as potentially introducing shortcomings into our understanding of the decision stage? I think the best way to do that is focus in on two big problems of probabilism. There, My article and book treat many problems, but two suffice to show that probabilism doesn't work for legal fact-finding. The two problems are when a case involves weak versus weak evidence. And the second is the old conjunction chestnut. So here's a hypo. Assume that the evidence in a civil suit on a fact's existence, say Dave's identification as the culprit, say that evidence remains weak after hearing all the available but very imperfect evidence, you know, based on weak eyewitness identification. The fact finder somehow gauges the showing of likelihood that it was Dave and puts it, let's say, at 16% to using a gauge of full proof, ticks up as the proof comes in. Nevertheless, this affirmative evidence that it was Dave definitely outweighs 
the evidence that it was not Dave, which the fact finder uses his gauge to put it around 4%. Through no one's fault, no other evidence exists. At this point, if you were forced to bet on whether the identification of Dave is the right course to follow, and you wanted to use odds to express, well, the preceding sentence, then you might say, well, the probability it was Dave is 80%, and the probability it wasn't was 20%, based on the evidence presented. That is, even though your belief one way or the other is fairly weak, if you had to allocate all of your belief to yes or no, you would formulate the odds at 80-20. Okay, so that's the uh, first half of the assumption of the hypothetical. Here's the second half. Assume further that the fact finder finds that the actor was Dave, resting on that 80% probability. And based on more evidence, the fact finder goes on to find that the fault by whoever acted, the fault is 60% probability, probably at fault. The conjoined odds that it was Dave and that the actor, whoever, was at fault are therefore 48%. In other words, 80% times 60% is 48%. Probabilities accepted standard of proof is, you know, P has to be greater than 50%. Should the fact finder find in favor of the plaintiff or the defendant? Okay, so that's the hypo. Okay, so what does the law do? Well, the law has to decide on the available evidence. And unavoidable unknowns don't weigh in either direction. So looking at the first half of the hypothetical, I think the law's fact finders would and should normally consider identity to be proved that it, it was Dave. The plaintiff carried the burden of production. The fact finder leans more to the culprits being Dave than it's not being Dave. Deciding for the defendant would more likely be an error than deciding for the plaintiff. Nevertheless, that 80-20 figure is, seems to be an inaccurate representation of the fact finder's state of mind as the evidence. The fact is, the fact finder was awash in uncertainty. In terms of the state of mind, an 80% chance on airtight evidence would be very different from this 80% chance of identity based on the thin evidence. When you combine the 80-20 finding with other findings, you probably are going to be introducing a source of error by converting the weak showing into a simple and powerful 80% showing. Why do you do that? Because what you do is you disregard the epistemic evidence. You disregard the fact that we don't have much evidence. As to the second step concerning overall liability, probability theory here directly leads us astray. The additivity axiom leads in mathematically to the product rule that you multiply probabilities in order to get the conjoined probability. So that the product rule implies that Dave, the defendant, should prevail, that 80%, 60% leads to 48%, that's less than 50%, the defendant should win. But the law here is perfectly clear. If the actor was found to be Dave, and if the actor, whoever it was, was found to have acted with fault, the plaintiff should win. If the plaintiff won the first necessary fact and won the second necessary fact, the plaintiff wins. In other words, the standard of proof applies necessary fact by necessary fact. It does not apply to the overall case. And according to probability, that's simply illogical. So there would be two key, two phenomena 
that probability clearly handles inadequately. I think it's a really important insight, and it tees up for us, I think, the major question that we're all excited to explore, and that is your model, Kevin. How how does your model in this paper potentially better handle these issues? Okay, my model proceeds by not making the two assumptions of bivalence and additivity. That is, it's a more general model, just doesn't assume. If you were, take my model, if you were to reassume bivalence and additivity, my model would produce traditional probability as a special case. My model is the more general model. And if you make the necessary assumptions, you can produce the special rule of traditional probability. I think that's an indication of my model's validity. Another indication of the model's validity is that it gets there by using multivalent logic, which is new to most of the listeners, I suppose, because they've been used for several millennia to using bivalence. But it is a widely accepted and highly developed system of logic. It is a valid system of logic. And a third validation of my model is that I think it conforms, my model conforms to what law already does. Okay, the model is this. Picture a bar graph that represents the fact finder's full capacity for belief. A degree of belief expresses the belief in fact X, which equals the fact finder's estimate of the degree to which the affirmative X has been fully proved by reliable and logical means. And that sounds like gibberish, I suppose, but just saying a picture of bar graph that represents belief, and you're going to measure how far you are along that bar graph toward full proof, towards a full unquestioned belief in the fact. So how does this then work in a real case? Well, at the beginning of a real case, all belief is uncommitted. This is what we tell the jurors or the when we tell the judge too. You come in, there is no belief. You start in a blank slate. Presumably, as the proof comes in, a belief starts to go on the left side of the bar. Presumably, as the evidence comes in, a disbelief in X will eventually grow on the right side of the bar. And so they build in from the left and right side. That leaves a middle. And what that middle is, is uncommitted belief, the part of your mind that remains unconvinced. What is that? That is a measure of the epistemic uncertainty. The uncommitted belief, in turn, causes the degree of belief and the degree of disbelief in X to add to less than one. That it is, these two measures of belief and disbelief are non-additive, that is, they're non-probabilistic. So the proof comes in, you've got a belief in X, you've got a disbelief in X, and you've got uncommitted belief that represents the unknowns due to the imperfect evidence. To accept a proposition as true in a civil case, the belief must exceed the disbelief. That is, the preponderance of the evidence is best understood as providing that the burden party should win if and only if the belief in the fact exceeds the disbelief in the fact. The belief in not A. The belief in A must exceed the belief in not A. Preponderance hence means that the fact is more true than false. That's civil. The higher standards of proof, 
demand a greater predominance of belief in relation to disbelief, and I developed that in the article. Now, how does conjunction work? Say you have to prove fact A and fact B. The multivalent logics operator here, logical operator, is the min rule. That is, the conjunction of belief A and belief B is the minimum of the two degrees of belief. The easiest way to swallow that is to picture the belief in A as being, say, 0.25 to a quarter of fully proved A. And the belief in B is 0.50, that you've half proved it. Well, what's the conjunction? What is the belief in A and B combined? Well, it's 0.25. That is, in other words, you prove A to 0.25, you prove B to 0.50. Well, then the chain of A and B is as strong as its weakest link. It's 0.25. So consequently, legal fact finding does not multiply beliefs. It uses the min operator. Again, the min operator is the more general replacement for the product rule which would appear as a special case if you were to reassume bivalence and additivity. Okay, so these observations fully resolve Dave's hypo. First, the law's treatment of weak evidence finds justification in multivalent belief theory. Rather than requiring the proof to exceed a 50% showing, the law compares belief and disbelief in effect. As long as belief A perceptibly exceeds belief in not A, the civil plaintiff should prevail. So when we showed it more likely fully proved that it was Dave than it was not Dave, then it's Dave for the law's purposes. Second, the law's element by element application of the standard of proof is justified by the min rule. Rather than reducing probabilities by multiplication, like the probabilities product rule says, the law recognizes that strong proof of A and strong proof of B means strong proof of A and B occurring together. As long as A and B and every other element satisfy the standard of proof, then the conjunction of all elements satisfies the standard of proof. So in glorious summation, my model explains how to get from belief produced by evidence processing to a decision achieved by evaluating the proof against the standard of proof. Mine is not a reconception or a reform. It's really an attempt to explain and justify what the law has done for centuries. It, it really is a striking model. And I think that we could talk about it for hours if we had the time. But I couldn't recommend to our listeners more highly to go out and read this article and Kevin's entire body of work, because I think every book, every article from you that I've read has been so insightful. So thank you, Kevin, so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's, it's been wonderful talking to you. And I've really enjoyed having you on Excited Utterance. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed being on Excited Utterance. So zooming out here for a second, I really enjoyed this conversation with Kevin. I was fascinated as I was listening to him um, discuss the different phases of the proof process because I think this conversation and his paper in particular offers an opportunity for us to kind of look at evidence law at a lo higher level of generality, if you will. We're not kind of so focused on the minutia of one particular rule or one particular procedure in the courtroom, but we're examining and trying to conceptualize an entire phase of trial. And as I kind of discussed with Kevin today, that's immensely important work. 
being able to model the proof process in the courtroom, but it's somewhat under-theorized in the literature. Now, to be sure, we have kind of titans in the field currently who have offered various conceptualizations of the proof process at trial. We have Ron Allen and Mike Pardo and their notion of relative plausibility. We have my co-host, Ed Chang, who's advanced a probabilistic notion of proof in the courtroom. And of course, we have Kevin Claremont, who's offered his thoughts with us today. And even then, as I'm now engaged in this dangerous task of, of kind of seeing what comes to the forefront of my mind as I think about um, key pieces in this, this field, I recognize that I'm neglecting fantastic pieces from other scholars as well. Fred Schauer, Alex Stein, Christian Dahlman, they've all worked in this space. But despite the existence of these kind of key accounts from, from many leading scholars, I can't help but shake the feeling that legal theory, particularly legal theory and its intersection with the, with the proof process, has suffered kind of a balkanized, atomized state in recent years. Until we really started to see the emergence of the North Sea Group and that um, kind of discussion forum in the evidence world over the past few years, it felt to me that these different accounts of the proof process were too atomized, that there needed to be more discussion across different camps. But I'm heartened to see that that's beginning to change. Of course, we have Kevin Claremont's fantastic piece, Engaging with Probabilism Today. We have the aforementioned North Sea Group, which has led to many fantastic debates on the proof process. And I think that this is one of the coolest trajectories in the evidence literature. We're going to see more of these cross-conversations about legal theory and the proof process. And I am really looking forward to following this line of scholarship. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Pranstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program and the Texas A&M University School of Law. The producer is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional assistance was provided by Tammy Pierce, and background music is provided by Kirsten Castle-Greer, Felix Wong, and Alex Crew. I'm, of course, your host, Alex Nunn, and I hope you will join us again next time when we take on another work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.